So, I guess we are who we are for a lot of reasons. And maybe we'll never know most of them. But even if we don't have the power to choose where we come from, we can still choose where we go from there. We can still do things, and we can try to feel okay about them. Stephen Chbosky, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. The exact moment that I first heard the words, speak up. I auditioned for the Magic Harmonica at Rockwell Community Playhouse, which is like the cutest mini theater I've ever seen. They posted these open call auditions around my school. I don't have many memories from this time, but my mom says that I begged my parents to let me audition pretty much on my hands and knees. I can a thousand percent believe that. I was obsessed with the sound of music since I left the womb. (laughs) I got a small part and have been hooked to theater pretty much ever since. There's literally nothing like it in the world. I was in the chorus, which let's just give some thanks to that director real quick, because honestly, it just prepared me for 10 more years of being in the ensemble. (laughs) I came to have a love for it, though. The ensemble is the backbone of all productions. Well, okay, I mean, besides us techie kids, it wouldn't be anything without the techies. Anyways, (laughs) the director gave us a month to memorize our lines during the summer, which, of course... I didn't. (laughs) You give a first grader the option between learning lines and swimming in the pool? Yeah, mm, obvious choice there. I hadn't taken one glance at the script until the night before we were supposed to be memorized. You'd think my parents would be like, hey, uh, maybe you should get to memorizing, but they didn't. (laughs) For the first off-book rehearsal, I remember standing center stage with a giant spotlight gleaming into my eyes, attempting to croak out what I thought might be the line. From the back of the auditorium, the director yelled, speak up, I can't hear you. Hearing her tell me I couldn't be heard stuck with me for a long time. In school, When I would have the courage to raise my hand to ask a question, my teachers would say the same thing. Speak up. What? I can't hear you. I just picture a a frail and shy little Taylor just shrinking into her desk every time they said that. She was mortified. I didn't understand why no one could hear me. As far as I was aware, I was speaking clearly. I always thought that everyone just wasn't listening, 
to me hard enough, but really, I couldn't find a voice. I mumbled. I ducked my head down to the floor. I tried so hard not to be seen or heard by anyone because I felt like I shouldn't be. I was so, 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 so shy as a kid. And that goes for everything. My mom ordered for me at restaurants until an older age. And I think even then, I cried when I had to do it myself. Or like in a restaurant when I had to go up to the counter and ask for a side of ranch, my heart would start racing and I'd fidget with my hands or mess with my clothes. I was that kid who got the wrong drink at a restaurant and would just sit there not saying anything. (laughs) If we're being honest, that's kind of still how I am. (laughs) Uh, oh, I wanted a Dr. Pepper, but you, you gave me a Coke. I hate Coke, but like, I don't want to complain to this person, so I, I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just choke on it. (laughs) This timid nature has followed me around my entire life. It's because I felt so different from everyone else on many different levels, among other reasons, but in second grade, I was tested for the gifted and talented program. I was reading at a 12th grade level and had already finished the Harry Potter series. (laughs) My teachers always looked at me with this, this bewildered look on their face like, whoa, you're so smart, kid. So every day a staff member at our school would come knock on the door and whisk me away to another room where I'd go and learn I guess, on a different level than the other kids. We'd read these big books and mess our way around brain teasers and puzzles and brain games. They'd take us 10 or so kids on field trips to museums and interactive labs while the other kids stayed at school for the day. Some kids around me still couldn't read or write their name, and I couldn't understand why I was so ahead I know, what a mundane thing to whine about. I'm so different because I'm smart. Looking back, I see now that it was an absolute privilege, but in the moment, I thought I was an alien or something. I should have felt like I was Matilda, but I felt like E.T. instead. (laughs) The kids would crunch their noses at me and say, well... Why do you get to go away every day to another classroom and we don't? As if being smart was something to be ashamed of? I should have felt included in such a prestigious honor, but instead I felt like I didn't belong. I hated hearing that I was gifted and talented. Over the years, I've come around to it. I think I've learned to love the label of gifted and talented. My physical appearance was something that made me feel out of place, too. So, I grew actual boobs in the third grade, while my other friends were still in training bras. And not like the, oh, you're growing some boobs, boobs, like real boobs. 
for real bras. Boobs I shouldn't be getting until at least maybe sixth grade. I'd wear these real bras to school underneath my <laughs> sparkly and sequin justice shirts and hold on to my American Girl doll with a death grip. <laughs> on top of all of that, I was the tallest kid in my class. I was this chubby girl who shot above everyone else. This, it came to my advantage when I joined a basketball team in fifth grade, but when everyone else around you looks so much more different than you are, it makes you feel so foreign. So then, <laughs> in the fourth grade, I got my period. Yep. In full swing. Once again, I was mortified. I had known that at some point I was supposed to have this big life-changing event, but I was never prepared for my period to interrupt my recess. <laughs> that night, I was standing in the kitchen as my mom washed dishes, just trying to work up the courage to break this awful news to my mom, trying to, you know, speak up. I walked up to her at the sink, and she kind of smiled at me. So, I walked back to my room without saying anything. <laughs> I tried to tell her two more times to no avail before my mom hit me with a, What is it, Taylor? I immediately burst into unconsolable tears, like the worst thing on the planet had happened to me. And then, rightfully so, my mom starts to freak out, thinking something is wrong with me. <laughs> I can only imagine what was going through her head. After eventually coaxing it out of me, she sat me down in my room and plopped this big book in my lap. It was called The Care and Keeping of You. <laughs> Any girl my age knows exactly the book I'm talking about. When we were too scared to ask our moms questions, this book took care of us. It covered everything we ever needed to know, including a diagram of how exactly to insert a tampon. All the girls my age listening to this are like nodding their head. <laughs> they know. I know you know fourth grade? Are you joking me? I feel like that's extremely early to get your period, but hey, maybe I'm wrong. I envy those girls who are like, I didn't get my period until junior year of high school. Well, good for you. I've been PMSing for almost 10 years now. Did you enjoy your years of freedom? Because I didn't. So, needless to say, with all of that, and then of course my family problems, I just felt different. And I was convinced that everyone was ready to point it out to me how different I was. If anyone gave me the slightest bit of attention, I could have crawled into a hole and died, actually. Which is so weird because attention is all that I really wanted. I wanted someone to look at me and say, I see you. 
I hear you. You're not strange. I came back from the summer between 7th and 8th grade? Yeah. Yeah, 7th and 8th grade, to find that I was no longer the tallest kid in school or the only girl with boobs. It seemed that everyone around me had hit puberty that summer. The boys shot up in feet, and the girls were suddenly wearing makeup and Miss Me jeans. I still went home every day and played Barbies. Yeah, everyone got their braces off and started using curling irons and straighteners. I still dressed like that fourth grader me. Instead of feeling too far ahead, I started to feel too left behind. I had no idea what makeup even was. I mean, what the hell was a naked palette? I had been dabbing my eyelashes with sink water every morning under the impression that it worked the same as mascara. (laughs) I didn't know how to groom my natural unibrow, so I just let it grow out. And don't even get me started on thongs. My classmates were starting to, you know, French kiss each other under the bleachers. (laughs) I had a middle part, acne, and huge gap teeth. Huge. The gap between my two front teeth was big enough for me to put my tongue through it. Seriously, I was a sight for sore eyes. I wore these... Oh, God. I wore these khaki pants all the way up to my chest with a belt and a bright-ass yellow polo shirt to school every day. (laughs) And as they would laugh with their straightened teeth and perfectly curled hair, they had the audacity to turn around in their seat, look directly at me, and ask, why are you so quiet? It was a question that made my stomach churn. Even today, hearing it said, it still gives me that horrible, dreadful feeling in my stomach when someone asks me that. What the hell do you mean, why am I so quiet? It must be so easy for you to connect with people. You look like that. And I look like this. I was just so intimidated by everyone. Even today, years later, I get asked, why are you so quiet? I struggle with finding a way to tell people, like, trust me. I want to be the person who breaks out of their shell in the first five minutes of meeting you, but I'm not. And I'm sorry I'm so quiet. I'm, I'm sorry I'm not up to par. Making friends was never an easy thing for me to do, as you can probably conclude. <laughs> I had so many friend crushes, like people I'd look at and instantly want to be their friend, but had no means of reaching out about it. It was like there was an enormous barrier placed in between me and this person in which I was incapable of crossing. I was, as one might say, on the outside 
always looking in. Will I ever be more than I've always been? <laughs> I was a much younger and uh, female Evan Hansen. A person who wanted so badly to just fit in with the world, but couldn't quite close the gap. I think growing up in a household that wasn't always kind was 97% of the root cause of this issue for me. It's hard for me to voice anything because I was afraid to be wrong or get yelled at. I mean, I was afraid to be wrong about things that no one can even be wrong about. Like, my name is Taylor. How could, how could I have been wrong about that? From the very beginning, I felt silenced and so different to the point that I thought there was no reason for me to speak. I felt so unloved and unwanted even when I had friends. I had this great group of five friends in middle school, and they were always so loving to me, but I just couldn't accept the notion of being loved by someone. It was that hypervigilant nature about me that was on constant alert for pain. Somehow, it felt better to live in a fantasy that someone didn't love me rather than accept that they did and have to lose them later. I had convinced myself that they just felt bad for me. They didn't want to actually hang out with me. They didn't want to come to my birthday parties. They did it because they were forced to. I fell into this downward spiral of self-loathing that actually almost got me expelled from school. Here, let me paint the picture for you, okay? Seventh grade me with her pants pulled up to her chest, you know, her unibrow. Uh, <laughs> I got it into my head that the only way I could get someone to prove that they loved me was to create these little these little tests. I wanted to find out who would stand up for me. Looking back at that now, I can see why that's what I felt I needed. You know, I wasn't being protected at home against someone I had no power over. I wanted to be protected. I wanted my friends to want to protect me. So... This is so embarrassing that I'm even telling this story. I wrote a note. I wrote a note using my left hand, you know, thinking people wouldn't be able to decipher the handwriting. I created a fake bully. It was a note from me to me. The bully who wrote it said that they thought I was fat. They thought I was ugly. They thought my friends really hated me. You know, all of the things I really thought of myself. I took that note and I showed it to my group of friends. And like the good friends that they were, they were enraged. They wanted to know who was doing it, how, why, when, where. It made me feel great inside. I was, I was on top of the world because, oh my gosh, they do love me. <laughs> but... I guess one time wasn't enough for little old Taylor. I started to write these fake bully notes and stash them in my locker. I 
take them to class and show them to my friends one by one. One time, I was clever enough to place it in my locker so that it would fall out while my friend stood next to me. Mm Mm-hmm, smart, right? (laughs) It was a true testament to my, you know, acting skills as it fell out and I was forced to act surprised, like, oh my gosh, another one? Who could have possibly put that in there? This went on for so long. Maybe, maybe a whole semester? Just constant notes, constant self-bullying. But my friends were showering me with love, constantly checking in on me and asking me how my day was, how I was doing, despite, you know, the trouble at home and the unidentified self-bully notes. (laughs) It was all I ever wanted, to love and just be loved in return. I mean, I had it good, too. I got invited to sleepovers and birthday parties and movie dates with my friends. We bonded and laughed and, and leaned on each other. At this point, the notes stopped for a few months. I felt comfortable enough that they really did love me. But then, one day, I went too far. The night before had been this altercation with my father, and I was so down on myself and life. So, like I had the month before, I pulled out the journal that I only used for the notes. I mean, The bully couldn't have the same paper as me, right? Come on. And placing what I felt inside on the paper, I wrote the words, I wish I could have immediately taken back. I wrote, go kill yourself. When I showed my friends this note, there was no more sympathy. It got serious. They insisted we go to the principal's office, like, you know, the smart people that they were. (laughs) I knew it would go down badly. I refused. No, 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 no. I'll I'll just, I'll take care of it myself. It, It will all blow over. It'll be fine. Then a few class periods later, (laughs) I got called down on my own, out of class. I walked in. And the principal was sitting at her desk, as well as two of my friends and an SRO. It was an intervention. They had caught on already. I don't know exactly how long they knew and let me go on with my little scheme, but they had decided then that enough was enough. This would be the part in my Dear Evan Hansen where I'd be, you know, singing words fail in front of my friends because of the giant lie I had been caught in. They played the security cameras for me. I played dumb (laughs) until the principal told me she was going to call my dad. I broke down crying and my friends begged her. They knew that he'd hurt me, like actually hurt me, not like spanking. She told us she wouldn't call him and then gave me a week of suspension. The best part of that whole thing was that the two friends there that day still stayed my friends afterwards. They didn't tell anyone else. They could have ruined my entire life by 
telling the entire school, but they didn't. They didn't tell anyone. They just kept it between us. It showed me that I didn't have to lie to make friends. Well, that I didn't have to lie ever again <laughs> to make people like me or want me or love me. <laughs> that makes me want to go and just hug my younger self. She felt so badly about herself and thought that was the only way she could be properly loved. That's, of course, not an excuse for the mess that I made that year, but it does explain a lot. The bad part of that story is that my principal did still end up calling my dad. It's sad that I didn't feel like I could just be myself to have friends. I had to create scenarios for it to feel like people loved me. The only exception to this rule was being on stage, which I guess isn't really an exception seeing as it's acting and that's creating scenarios, but whatever. I loved it so much. I had a small part in the spring musical in seventh grade. Dear Edwina, who remembers? <laughs> I remember getting one line. I had one line and I wasn't about to fuck this up. <laughs> Come dress rehearsal time, the first day we're rehearsing in the big auditorium. It's time for me to strut my stuff and deliver this line. Puffed up my chest. I planted my feet. I took a deep breath and I spoke my line like it was the only thing I was made to do in life. I make all the sets. But my theater director called from the back of the audience. Speak up. I can't hear you. I went backstage to the dressing room and cried for 30 minutes. <laughs> there it was again. Speak up. Speak up. Speak up. Couldn't they see that I was trying the next year by some miracle? <laughs> I landed my first lead in a show. I promised myself that everyone in that audience would hear me, even if it meant that I was shouting. And on opening night, I did it. We got a standing ovation. I mean, as much as much of a standing ovation that you can get for a middle school production, <laughs> maybe the audience just felt bad for us. <laughs> I remember feeling everyone's gaze shift to me when I said my lines. They wanted to know what I had to say. I felt like people saw me. People heard me for the first time. I didn't have to be the big-boobed, gap-toothed, too-tall fourth grader anymore because I was someone else. Suddenly, I felt like, oh, oh, I can do this shit in my sleep. <laughs> a crowd of people cheering for me as I took a bow, I loved that kind of attention. A teacher calling on me in class? Mm, absolutely not. Theater was more to me than an extracurricular. It was a safe place. It was a lifeline. It, it was what taught me to finally speak up. <laughs> That's where my love affair with theater begins. You can't be in theater and have a show, as I soon came to realize as I transitioned into high school. My incredible theater director, Miss Stone, 
slowly but surely broke me out of that multi-layered shell. If it hadn't been for theater, there are times I don't think I would have truly survived. And that's the truth. There's something so magical about being a part of a team like that, who always have your back, bouncing ideas off of each other, finally getting that damn timing right, (laughs) learning the color of your scene partner's eyes. Theater doesn't just show you how to deliver a powerful monologue. Theater creates everlasting bonds with people. It teaches them how to connect with the world. It shapes people. I will always feel forever changed by all that Miss Stone did for me and taught me and how much that impacted the rest of my life. I would have still been that kid who felt the need to lie so that people would love me and listen to me. No, don't you see? All you needed to do for that was join theater. So, hey, Holly Stone, if you're listening to this, I meant every word of what I said. You are remarkable. Come be on my podcast one day. Let me interview you. (laughs) We can talk about those Nazi flags we carried around for months for one act. (laughs) Another part of me that ended up shaping my life is writing. It is the one thing I can say without a doubt in my soul that I've always been good at. Always. I never had to convince myself of that. After being tested for the gifted and talented program, I was put into creative writing. Really, it was just a small classroom, not much bigger than like a coat closet. A teacher would sit on one side of the desk and flip over three different booklets. Using the objects in those booklets, I'd be prompted to write a story. It was a piece of cake for me. (laughs) Imagination was, and always has been, my strong suit. Before theater, the only place I truly felt like I had a voice was in writing. Obviously, because I wrote those self-bully notes. (laughs) But seriously, anyone listened to what I wrote. I could write all day long about anything anything I wanted to, and there was no one to tell me what was right and what was wrong. It was entirely up to me. I loved feeling like I was in control of something, which is probably also why I've been playing The Sims for 15 years. (laughs) I mean, you give a powerless kid godlike abilities in a video game, I was all about it. I had always loved to make books. These books were mainly done between the covers of like a spiral notebook you get at the dollar store, but I got creative with them. I'd make a table of contents. I'd number the pages. I'd write my own about the author with a bad self-portrait drawing. (laughs) Yeah, drawing, not my strong suit. Writing came naturally to me because imagination came naturally to me. So, when it came time to choose my English class for high school, I didn't even think twice. I chose pre-AP English because I knew it was where I needed to be to meet my full potential. Don't stick me with the kids who don't know the difference between there, there, and there. Put me somewhere where I can write, where I can learn. 
Everyone's first day as a high school freshman is terrifying. There are upperclassmen who shove you into lockers, teachers handing out a syllabus for every subject, the confusion of where to sit at lunch. In case you're wondering, I sat in the girls' bathroom on my first day. <laughs> but my first class of the day was English. This was going to be a breeze because I knew writing was what I did best. At least, if anything, I would always be starting my day with writing. <clears throat> now, ladies and gents, this is where one of the most influential and important people in my life have their entrance cue from stage left. Mrs. Crumno. She taught me in pre-AP English that year and my sophomore year. Like theater and Miss Stone did, Mrs. Crumno helped me tap into my voice. Not so much my physical voice, but the voice inside my head where I could decide what I wanted to share into the world. She had big blonde hair and the warmest smile that always welcomed you into her classroom. Her smile was like a giant hug. I caught on to Mrs. Crumno's energy right away. She has one of those auras that you can just tell. She has a sweet spot for the wallflowers, and I was definitely one of them. <laughs> Somewhat close to the beginning of the school year, we had an assignment to write about what it looked and felt like to walk through our home. Mrs. Crumno was notorious for picking people to read their writings out loud to the class. This is a moment I will never, for the rest of my life, ever forget. The kids in my class read about what it looks like to walk into their front door. I walk in and see a red carpet. My mom stands in front of the stairs. I take two steps and there's the couch. Nothing too deep, just in a literal sense what it feels like to walk through their home. I felt myself turn ghost white, as Mrs. Crumno called on me. I knew my writing wasn't like the other kids and my palms were already clamming up as they read. I thought in my gut that I had done the assignment wrong. And I protested. No, 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 I, I think I did it wrong. I, do, I don't want to read mine. I did it wrong. But Mrs. Crumno insisted. <laughs> she was really good at that. You're going to have to get used to sharing with the class, she had said. There's no right or wrong way to write anything. So, with my voice shaking and hunched over in my desk, I read. I don't have the exact wording of it anymore, but I wrote that the transition from the outside world to the inside of my house was dark and scary. How most people see the wall that they painted together as a family, decorated with happy and smiling pictures. I saw a wall with sporadic white spots that filled in holes in the wall because my father's fists tore through them. I saw the carpet where my nose ran red blood and stained it indefinitely. I saw the closet where I hid on the phone with 911 and the paramedics busted down the door. I saw the shattered glass of picture frames and broken dishes that had been thrown at me. I saw what most of the world sees as a home, but to me, 
It was never a place I could call home. It was the place where I would never be safe. The classroom had grown cold (laughs) and quiet, and I remember seeing the palpable sadness in Mrs. Crumno's eyes. Maybe from regret of making me read that out loud, (laughs) but more a love and understanding for me and all that I was as a human being. She came up to me later and took my hand and looked me straight in the eye. Mrs. Crumno told me, don't ever stop writing. Ever. And since then, I haven't. Mrs. Crumno encouraged my ideas and listened to what I had to say, both as a person and as a writer. I would also like to point out that though I wrote ominous things like that, I never came out and told her, hey, yo, Miss Crumno, my dad beats me, because I was too scared. And I know that, in a heartbeat, she would have reported it in a second. You'll probably hear me say that the school didn't do anything to help me or my sister, and I just want to make it very crystal clear that Mrs. Crumno is not one of those people. I never told her. On individual assignments, she always made sure to write little notes on my essays, full of love, with hearts and smiles. I felt safe with her. She's one of the first and only teachers I can think of that was so much more than a teacher to me. She deserves all the praise and love in the world. She and Miss Stone both. She showed me love even when I made bad decisions, like showing up to her class high on painkillers during my sophomore year. Truthfully, I don't think she knew that I was high, but I wasn't doing my best work. She wasn't afraid to tell me that either. I know you can do better than what you have here, she'd say to me. And of course, I took what she had to say to heart. Or those days where I just wasn't happy. I'd lay my head down on the desk and cry, and she would walk past me and just pat my back. There was never an expectation that I needed to meet with her. I was never right or wrong. I just got to be. That meant everything. She continues to support me and love me through social media today, which I am absolutely so thankful for. (sighs) Teachers, man, they deserve so much more than what they're given, especially those teachers like Mrs. Crumno and Miss Stone. Finding my voice. It has been a journey. (laughs) A journey that, might I add, is still ongoing. I struggle with crossing that barrier every day. So, for example, I've been a delivery driver for the past two and a half years at two different stores, but I just moved stores. This new store is by far my favorite one I've ever worked at. I'd say 85% of the people who work there are under the age of 30, which is opposite of how it was in my other stores. (laughs) I was the only girl at my last store, and this one has an abundance of estrogen. (laughs) I love it. It's been a fun fest, but man, has it been so hard for me. My manager and a few other girls Okay, well, technically they're all kind of my managers. 
They've been my friend crushes since the first day I started. They're all so outrageously beautiful and fun and intelligent and meaningful and I've wanted so, so badly to just be the best of friends with them and hang out with them, you know, (laughs) post-quarantine. I've been having such a hard time working up the courage to say two words to them. I've been working on it to the point of exhaustion. Part of me resorts back to that middle school feeling of they don't want me. And in like a very depressing and literal sense, I kind of feel that way about most people. Like, oh, my dad didn't even want me. Why would this stranger? It's all my shit. It's all my trauma and my abandonment issues. I know that. I take full responsibility. It's this wall I've put up around me to block out all pain and suffering. It's that voice inside my head that tells me, don't even try because when they leave you, it's going to hurt. And I've always thought that because people do. So in a way, it's like I've created this self-fulfilling prophecy for myself and I'm trying so hard to not do that with these girls. They're all such beautiful human beings and actually they're probably listening to this right now so hey guys what's cracking? (laughs) No just kidding they're not. (laughs) Anyways (laughs) they're so full of life and fun and just Everything special about friendship wrapped up into each of them. But could I reach out and say that? No. My first few days working there were filled with me taking deliveries to my car, crying the entire way, back and forth, wiping my face, going back inside the store, and repeating. I was so frustrated with myself. Like, why can't I be the type of person who goes up to someone and has a million things to say, a million conversation starters? Why do I have to be afraid? All that runs through my mind is, what I'm saying is wrong. They don't want to listen to me. And even worse, when I do get close to them, they're going to leave me. For the longest time, I almost used it as a cop-out. I told myself, You've had things really rough, and people have not always been kind to you. It's okay to be scared of people. You don't have to talk to everyone all the time. I made it so that I didn't have to, but then I had no friends. (laughs) I eventually had to be honest with myself and say, Taylor, you don't get a pass on communication just because things have been rough. That's not how this works. So, maybe you have to work twice as hard as other people do, but you still have to work at it. (laughs) That's my problem. I sink back into the comfort and the safety net and don't push myself to try. That's where this podcast conceptualized. (laughs) I'm not great at talking to people. You can almost say that I suck at talking to people, but I don't want to anymore. I want to be able to talk to people and ask them questions and engage in meaningful conversations. 
I don't want to be the girl who hides in the corner, afraid to take one step out of fear that someone will tell me I stepped incorrectly. I want to be that girl who can go up to my friends and hold their hands or give them hugs, and that's not easy for me. I know that on the outside, I may look to be this powerhouse human being who takes no prisoners and blogs about things that are on my mind. I preach these stories about bettering lives and resilience. I have so many people come up to me at Walmart or pop into my direct messages and tell me, Taylor, you're so fearless. But that's the thing. I'm not. I'm not fearless at all. I'm terrified. And while I can acknowledge that it's okay to be scared, I can also hold myself to a higher standard of wanting and needing to better myself for myself, for my future, and for life in general. How the hell am I going to be this actress, screenwriter, director, etc. if I can't even work up the courage to talk to people? So, I had an idea. I'm going to force myself to talk to people. (laughs) One, because I need the practice. And two, because I'm genuinely interested in learning about people and what makes them who they are. What decision led you to where you are today? How do you get through difficult emotions? How did you fail and learn? How did you rise from rock bottom? Like I said, I was literally about to record my first episode right before this coronavirus stuff happened. As soon as this is over, though, I have chapter two with such an incredible lineup of guests and loved ones and people who tell beautiful stories about resilience and life. For now, though, I guess I'll, I guess I'll be learning to, uh, speak up on my own first, (laughs) but I'm, (laughs) I'll be here sharing my laundry list of failures to you. I mean, times I've messed up, big time, times I thought I'd never come back from. You see my social media feed? You see those once-in-a-month perfect and poised pictures I post or the intricately thought-out blogs I've written. I shared my proudest moments with you, like when I met Dax. Social media doesn't show everything, though. I don't have to tell you that. Here is not the place for that. Here is messy. Here is human. Thank you so much if you stayed and listened to all of this. (laughs) Stay tuned for the rest of my episodes in the coming weeks because there's some good ones. I got some exposing stories for you. (laughs) I feel like I might see a drop in my friends list after this, (laughs) but in reality, I sincerely hope that by sharing these failures and tribulations, that someone out there will see that you can come back from anything. So, to end this first episode, I leave you with my current favorite line from my current favorite musical. I say current because it fluctuates. (laughs) Dear Evan Hansen, today is going to be a good day. 
And here's why, because today, today at least, you're you. And that's enough.